standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I know the world is starting to open up a little bit and so there is actually other things to do right now. So well done for listening. Your reward is a great chat with some excellent women. Some of you may already follow the excellent Twitter account On This Day She, which highlights the achievements of women in history. What you may not be aware is that the women responsible for that account have just written a book, also called On This Day She. Those women are Elsa Holland, Tanya Hirschman and Joe Bell. I didn't know which or how many of them I was getting for an interview until I started the Zoom call. Turns out all three and my days if we do some talking we talked until the sd card was full and then for a full 45 minutes after that couldn't even record it we were just chatting for the joy of chatting women's history in fact i was so over enthused about chatting about history i actually do make a mistake in this which i'm going to correct now and that's when i'm talking about my great 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 grandmother who had children rapidly one after another during the potato famine. The more eagle-eyed among you will probably spot that I say 1841, 1842, 1843. And that actually wasn't during the potato famine. What I should have said was 1844, 1845, 1846. So apologies for that error. Because the world continued to spin on its axis, you will hear a bit of background noise. My neighbours started some DIY. Elsa's cat had some fairly strong demands. There's a boat mooring at one point. But, you know, that's the world we live in now. Just a quick note before I stop waffling and let you get on with hearing it. We've, as ever, got some great interviews coming up. So if, like Aerosmith, you don't want to miss a thing, press subscribe wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. If only I knew enough about Aerosmith to make a follow-up joke here. Until next time. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by not one, not two, but three people, which is very exciting. I don't know how much we're going to cope with the crust talk, but who cares? I am joined by Elsa Holland, Tanya Hirschman and Joe Bell, the authors of a fantastic new book, On This Day She. Thank you all for joining me. Hello. It's great to be here. Hi. This is a weighty tome, and it's so weighty, in fact, that my postman actually made a visible noise when he handed it over to me. <laughs> he was like, oof, like that. It is really, really heavy. It's fantastic. It is the story of 366 women. I thought the best place to start is this spun out of your Twitter account on this day, she. Could one of you, whoever's best place to say it, tell me how and when that got started? Shall I do that? Yep. Yes, please. That's um, Elsa. Hi. Yeah. So it started because I was given a calendar for Christmas and on this day in history calendar for 2017. And as the year went on and I tore the days off and read about the events, there were just so few women mentioned. I think the first one came at the end of February and then by about the end of July, I'd got 20. And it just seemed to me ridiculous that, you know, 2017, this is still where we are, that women's history is not considered normal history so yes it came to the autumn still really angry (laughs) spouting off about it to joe and tanya and they were then also really angry we were all really angry together and we said well what can we do about it we have to do something about this and of course we know that there are people writing about women's history and stuff but it just seemed that it's it's not coming down into the kind of mainstream knowledge of history that it's staying maybe in that kind of academic realm yeah, and so we decided to do a Twitter account. We all knew our way around Twitter and Twitter's free. <laughs> and so that's where we started at the beginning of 2018. And yeah, we've posted every day since. Fantastic. It is a great account. Tell me, whose idea was it to turn it into a book? Uh, I'll, t- I'll take this one. It's Tanya. Well, from the beginning, we thought that um, a calendar seemed like a natural thing to do. Mm. But then as we tweeted more and more and we get just such fantastic responses to our tweets and we tweet about women across all fields, across as many countries as possible, all periods of history. We get people saying, why haven't I heard of this woman? And people start saying to us, well, you should make a book. 
And so after about two years, I should first say that we did think when we were planning the Twitter account, we all sort of secretly thought that we'd just do it for a year and then we'd probably run out of women, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Not repeating ourselves. We will never run out of women ever. And we're all we all have lists that we've got to to add to our calendar to then tweet about. And it's just endless. So we thought that a book sounded like a good idea and we pitched it to my agent who then pitched it to publishers and we're absolutely delighted that it's been picked up by the fantastic Bonnier Books who've made this incredible hefty tome. It's a history book. It's not a women's history book. It's a history book with some of the gaps in history filled in. And for us to choose only 366 women or groups of women well, it was difficult, and it led to some actual fist fights. Well, that was going to be my next. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I was going to go to Joe since Joe hasn't spoken yet. We've done lots of things in the past where women have written about other women, and one of the first questions we say is, "How did you whittle it down to a dozen people or twenty people?" You've got three hundred and sixty-six, and you were still having problems whittling it down. Tell me how you went about deciding who was going in and who didn't quite make the cut. Arm wrestling, mostly. <laughs> um, we all have special interests. So from our, our previous or existing lives, I was an archaeologist in a former life. Tanya has been a science journalist, Ailsa a literary historian. So we all have particular uh, threads of interest. And so that helped us. We were each able to bring our expertise. And so I brought, for instance, Gertrude Bell, who was a, an archaeologist and a heroine of mine. But as we went along, we also found people who just brought us all to a pitch of indignation or uh, amazement or glorious giggling. You know, some of these women are very funny. And I think we we all showed each other particular things and, and we've all had to recalibrate somewhat our sense of what's important in history because when you start writing about the women in history you realize that not just the individuals but the whole framework of history that we've been presented with is of course centered around the people the people what wrote it for the Mm. most part yeah so you have to start looking at things like of course suffrage but also education things about hygiene in cities, things about childbirth, things about early filmmaking, all of the the ways in which women have not been included in history because the things that have been primarily in their experience haven't interested male historians. So mm. you, you have to kind of shift the whole framework. And so I think we all did a bit of that and pushed the edges of our own comfort zone as we went along. I was reassured to see that a lot of the women in this book, we've already had people come on and talk on the podcast about the Edinburgh Seven. We've had them people talking about them, Sheila Delaney, Dorothy Garrard, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Catherine Johnson. So I was like, yes, we're definitely doing something right. But I was even more delighted to see that actually this book contains two of my absolute favourite hidden women in history. My favourite of all time, if I was going to pick a woman that I would just love to spend some time with, that would be Eleanor Roosevelt. But she has been quite extensively covered. But my two sort of hidden gems in history, both known not by their full name but by their nickname, are Mary Harris, who's better known as Mother Jones and Martha Cannery, who is better known as Calamity Jane. And they both lived in approximately the same time. And what I find so phenomenal about them is how, particularly with the case of Calamity Jane, how deeply flawed she was, genuinely deeply flawed, but how utterly revolutionary, because she is so modern. She understood the words celebrity and zeitgeist before anybody had even heard of those words and that is incredible and for all that people say about how behind every man there is you know a woman she had nothing she had no support network she had nothing she did it all on her own and it's incredible that was you joe i can see you nodding that was that was me that wrote that one. It's a shame, actually. We haven't been able to include a photo of every woman in the book. There's a great picture of Calamity Jane, and she looks rough. Oh, you she know? does. She's at the, yeah, she's at the graveyard <laughs> of, of uh, her sometime partner, we think, Bill Hickok. But she was a huckster. You know, she she made, as you say, she made a career for herself from a standing start with nothing. She was what you, you might 
called Trailer Trash without a trailer. There's a, a biographer of hers, James McLaird, and he says that if you look at her life story, she arrested no outlaws, robbed no banks and killed no Indians. She worked as a dance hall girl, prostitute, waitress, bartender and cook. She was a low-level Wild West personality, but she tacked herself onto this great circus of the Wild West, which was itself being promoted to mm. the more urban Eastern Americans by then, and realised that she could, you know, she could become a star. Yeah. So that newspapers reported when she was rolling into town. And that's a case in point, I think, of where her legend is greater because she is a woman. And the fact that most of her legend is untrue doesn't make it meaningless you know she it, it wasn't all doris day as yeah. as you clearly know Hannah. that's what that i mean i have read that book that's what i love about her though i she absolutely she just bullshitted and people bought it and that feels so modern it's just incredible yeah she would have been great on instagram yeah. uh, actually she would have put <laughs> yeah. lots of insta friendly pictures of you know rocks in utah or something yeah and and of what she was up to and she was she was a celebrity for the sake of celebrity yeah. at that time brilliant yeah. absolutely brilliant but she made her way as best she could and she was genuinely a part of this huge sort of second wave of Wild West fame appearing in shows with Geronimo and so on. Absolutely Ooh. incredible stories. Yeah. Now, the second one of those women, Mary Harris, the original Mother Jones, which one of you took that? That was me. That's you, Elsa. When I was in Philadelphia about 10 years ago, I actually went and stood underneath. There's a there's a plaque where the, the Children's March started, which she organised and... I've got a photograph of me. It's one of the hottest days I can ever remember. I look dreadful. It's just literally my hair dyes running down my face with sweat, but I'm so delighted that I was at her plaque. She is an incredibly interesting woman to me because she lived a, a relatively ordinary life until tragedy struck. And then she revolutionised her life and working conditions in America. Could you tell us a little bit more about her? She came from Ireland originally and emigrated to the US. And then she lost her husband and children in a yellow fever epidemic, four kids. And I think this was a point. I mean, obviously, she'd emigrated to hopefully find a better life from poverty in Ireland. And then in the US, again, she was aware that, you know, the reason that her family had been a victim of this was because they weren't rich. Mm. You know, she actually said the rich and the well-to-do fled the city and one by one, my four children sickened and died. And this incredible injustice, I think, just fired her. And she campaigned for social justice and, and better working conditions for people, and particularly for children, for the rest of her life. That tiger mother instinct. Yeah. She didn't put that away when she lost her family. She gave it, as it were, to the rest of society um, and campaigned for minors and their families and then the famous March of the Mill Children um, campaigned for children who were working in the mills. She's interesting as well because she, she, she wasn't a feminist and yet a lot of her behaviour seems to be very feminist. Did you discover that a lot, Tanya, that, that perhaps we in the 21st century would judge women from the past by their actions when in fact for example um, Mary uh, Jones's argument was if you paid not Mary Jones sorry Mary Harris's argument was if you paid men better the women would have the option not to work and what she was talking about was women who were doing 12-hour shifts for nothing so in a lot of ways I, I feel it's entirely wrong to judge her from our perspective. Did you see that a lot when you were uh, looking through this, Tanya? Um, well, one thing that we've tried really hard to do is definitely not to impose our own contemporary labels or judgments on anyone throughout history. And it's really, it's very interesting that you mentioned that, not just whether we call them a feminist or not, or, or but it's really hard because we often don't know how they saw themselves. And so we're really trying um, to respect that. For example, even using the word scientist, if, to someone who was sort of the, the word was coined to describe Mary Somerville in the mid 19th century. So even using that word for anyone who came before or doctor or any labels like that 
could be quite problematic. So we try very, very hard not to judge people from throughout history in terms of our own contemporary terms. And, you know, we, we couldn't, we couldn't, definitely couldn't make sweeping generalizations to say all these women consider themselves feminists. Quite a few of them, there are quotes from them, the scientists. And I think Catherine Bigelow, who's in our book as being the first woman to win the Best mm. Director Oscar, they say we don't want to be the best woman who we want to be one of the best people who one of the best directors one of the best scientists they just want to be known for their work and it's been really important to us one of the things with the twitter account and with the book is it's on this day she but from the beginning we decided we wanted to find a day on which was important to the woman herself because so often the on this day tweets and posts are about the day um, a person was born or died mm. and those aren't necessarily anything that the woman has control over yeah. so for us it's been very much about what the woman did on that day when we can find it and it's about the work they did and the things they did and for them to be considered as part of human history as humans also I think it's really important to say well they they might not have thought of themselves as a feminist or maybe they didn't really in a way know that word but they were absolutely fighting for women's rights mm. so saying it's my right to go to work when that work is something that is fulfilling and enjoyable and yeah. you know financially enriching is a totally different thing from saying I have to go to work and leave my children all day and I think one of the things that we've found is very often it's the women in history who are bothered about women's rights and who are bothered about children's rights, who are interested in children's medicine, who are interested in finding cures for women's medical problems. You know, Lucy Wills, who discovered folic acid, for example, because nobody had wondered why do pregnant women become anemic? So, yes, they're absolutely fighting for women's rights, even if they don't fit into what we might call now a feminist. Or Virginia Apgar, who we also have in the book, who who did the Apgar, is it called the Apgar Index? Which score, everyone, yeah. Apgar the score. Apgar score. So if you've had a baby, uh, it will have been tested on the Apgar score. And that's not an acronym, as many people think it is. It's the name of Virginia Apgar who invented it. But I was going to add to what uh, Elsa, Elsa was saying, not all women are ostensibly fighting for other women's rights because women are no more monolithic in the past than they are at present. And so, for instance, Gertrude Bell, who I mentioned earlier, was an anti-suffragist. She didn't think that women should have the vote because she thought most women were too poorly educated, were too thick to vote properly. And that may be the case, but most men are probably too thick mm. to have the vote e either. So, you know, <laughs> let's at least make it let's make it equally available to people here equally unfit to exercise it, yeah. you know. But she was an anti-suffragist and some of our women were. So although in their own individual examples they were working for women's rights by illustration, some of them were standing in the way of progress shouting stop. And mm. one of the things that we've always said about this book is Women's history, as it's so often called, the history of women, doesn't have to be uplifting. We don't have to be a fine example. We don't have to be badass or liberating or uplifting or fine moral examples of women. History is full of people who did really quite bad things mm. and indeed shaped the fates of millions of people by doing those bad things and some of those folk were women too yeah that is a really a really good point obviously the argument that you put forward at the start and i concur with you know women's history isn't so easy to find because it's written by men it's easy to look at that and think that that's something that used to happen but one of the women in your book who i have to say well i was absolutely obsessed by when I was a late teenager and in my early 20s is Mo Molum and on the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement so we're talking about 2018 Mo Molum was almost invisible in the coverage in this country so it's still happening I, I mean that's not even really a question is it it's just a, a, a massive sigh why is it still happening I suppose is the question I mean, it's baffling. It's baffling, isn't it, really? I mean, I think the answer is that I, I don't know. And I, I, I think this was one of the reasons for the initial rage about this project was that, you know, I was initially at university in the late 80s doing English literature, 
starting to discover, oh, there were all these women writers that haven't been written about, you know, yeah. so it was that kind of, it was second wave feminism and it was the women's press and Virago and all of these places producing this fantastic stuff. And, you know, I and the women I was at university with thought, this is it now, you know, by the time we're grown up, the equality is going to be there. And, you know, if and when we have kids, we'll just share the jobs, you know, yeah. we'll all work part time and it'll be completely equal. And we'll totally have solved that in the way that our mothers totally failed to because we are young and we've got this absolutely nailed. And then, of course, I get given this calendar at the yeah. age of whatever I was then, near enough 50. And my daughter by then is at university and it's still the same yeah. old shit, you know, and I, I, well, I mean, I could go on for hours about potentially about why that happens. But but the fact is that we just can't allow it to happen anymore, can we? And we have to make the time. We have to find the time to talk about these women and to talk about, yes, why they continue to be made invisible and kind of forgotten about and pushed to the side and left out of the photos. And we have been a little bit complicit in this as well that that actually as consumers of history if you like we have sometimes absorbed the prejudices that we find within it so we've noticed I certainly noticed that I would sometimes speak of female scientists there's no such thing as a female scientist Mm. there is only a, a scientist but also in the way that the very language of history frames women's lives so that for instance someone like Lou Andreas Salome who is an early psychoanalyst is described in a rather titillating way as a sort of potential a possible lover of Freud an associate of Freud part of Freud's circle she was a peer of Freud she was a contemporary and a colleague of Freud she was as involved as he was in defining the early science of psychoanalysis. And that happens time and time again, especially with artists and creative people, that that a woman is described as a muse when, in Mm. fact, she's a colleague, or that we ourselves, as women, have sometimes assumed that the task of being a wife and mother must have made her contribution the lesser. So Alice Guy Blachet, who's a very early cinematographer, really important cinematographer, and she was the wife of Mr. Guy Blachet, presumably. I don't remember his name. Uh, But they went off and set up their own studio, the first of the big pre-Hollywood studios. Massively important. And we have sometimes allowed those perceptions to imbue imbue how women read history and not question it deeply enough and not write enough wikipedia entries i'm going to hold my hand up and say i I, there is there is something in your book that i am guilty of doing kind of exactly that which is i first found out who rosalind franklin was in 2009 when quinton blake because i live in cambridge quinton blake made a mural for the celebration of 800 years of cambridge university and the pictures that he drew on that ended up everywhere in Cambridge, on mugs, on postcards, and everything. So that's the first time I learned who Rosalind Franklin was. Now, Quinton Blake, to his credit, puts her first in the list of names. He also has her working and the other two drinking, which feels like a jab at how they basically took credit for her work. Uh, Crick and Watson, that is. But, however, I give credit to Quinton Blake for teaching me who she was when in fact I know that it was actually the women at Newnham College and the family of Rosalind Franklin that did all of the graft to get her famous enough that he then so in many ways I've done exactly what I am criticizing other people for. I'm so glad to hear that Rosalind Franklin that was my entry in the book on 21st November and I'm the I'm the science geek of the three of us and so that that makes me really happy to hear about the mural because I hadn't heard about it either but I'm a bit I'm also a bit obsessed with Rosalind Franklin and have read the whole bi- the biography by Brenda Maddox yeah. and she's just I mean she, that she, I'd heard of her and I'm interested in science I'm fascinated by science but it shocks me how many of these women I have never heard of, how many of these scientists I have never, ever heard of. And I wanted to say as well that in terms of talking about what we're still doing wrong, it's been amazing to see people reading our book and the book is being bought by teachers. And someone tweeted us a week or two ago saying she was so excited to get the book because she remembered when she was at school, all she remembers is that they learned about three women 
Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth mm. and Florence Nightingale. Yeah. And all she was thought about Florence Nightingale was that she was kind. And it just really <laughs> made me think because maybe she was kind, yeah. but she's in our book because she was a pioneer of statistics. Yeah. She was a pioneering statistician and she was brilliant. So it's not just mentioning these women, it's how we talk about them and what we say about them as well. And, and also one thing that we've noticed as well is that very often people tend to talk about one woman, like, for example, Marie Curie, as if she is the one, she is the anomaly, she is the scientist, the woman who made it. And so it's not just all about the first woman too and the only woman too. So in our book, for example, we have the second woman to circumnavigate the globe in a car because the second and the third and the tenth are also groundbreaking. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really hoping that this book gets into schools and is read by, you know, children as well. That would be really fantastic. Although there are some quite, quite dark stories featured in the book as well. The other thing that Tanya mentions there about Florence Nightingale, for instance, she may have been kind, but she was a bloody nightmare as well in terms of campaigning and unceasingly bothering people who could make things change. And it, it just reminded me that Many of the women in our book and the women in history generally, they aren't written in because people don't know what to call them, because the general jobs were not available to them, being mm. women as they were, the qualifications to be an architect or a, a member of parliament were not available to them. So they were what we might call lobbyists or what we might call activists, for instance, or journalists. But they didn't call it that. Mm. They might have called it hosting a tea party or holding a salon. They might have called it writing stiff letters to Disraeli. But in fact, the way that they were doing that would, would make them, you know, like Sarah Churchill, who is not in the book, actually, but examples of powerful women who were really well-placed lobbyists mm. because of their place in society and who have not been credited as influential in the way that their male contemporaries were, because they, they couldn't be perceived as a professional person doing that sort of thing. They, yeah. they couldn't get the piece of paper. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that this whole coronavirus thing, that one of the good things that will come out of it is that will, people will see that you can still do a job and be a professional when you're at home. Because yeah. I think a lot of our women suffer from this kind of well she was at home and so she therefore was looking after the kids and so you know that as soon as they become wives or because they're not in the public realm they somehow disappear you know we've noticed that there were loads of astronomers for example because that's oh, something many. that you can yeah too many yeah we have to put it's like no we have too many astronomers you know uh, because that's something that you can do from home you know, yeah. if you're if you well to do and you can get yourself a telescope, you know, you could set it up in your own attic um, and when the kids are in bed. So they may have been prevented from joining the scientific associations, but they could still look at the stars and find new comets mm. and whatever it was. And I mean, that's one of the things we found, you know, that Virginia Woolf quote that the what is it? The emancipation of women is less interesting than the efforts of men to stop the emancipation of women. That's not the exact quote. But, you know, we've noticed that more and more. You know, we know that women were early medical workers. They wouldn't have called themselves doctors, but early healers or whatever. Because the Royal College of Physicians, we have records that the Royal College of Physicians told them they couldn't do it anymore. So they must have been doing it. Otherwise, that wouldn't have been necessary. Mm -hmm. In fact, we see that very often, don't we, that, that one woman does something that no woman has tried to do before. There are no rules to exclude women at first because no one imagined that a woman would try and do it. And as soon as one woman does it, they put the rules in place to stop women doing it. And they say, oh, that's not what we meant at all. Like the Boston Marathon, uh, yeah. the lady whose his name I can't remember, Schweitzer, I think. who, who Catherine Schweitzer, yeah. Yeah, but there are so many instances that we've come across. One woman gets through the net. One woman gets through and gets a medical degree or does something extraordinary before they stop her. And they go, oh, damn it, we've let one through. Immediately pass a law or create some constitutional technicality so that women are specifically excluded from this and some of the women in our book for instance the New Zealand women who fought to get women recognized legally as persons Canadian have, Canadian yeah. yeah oh I beg your pardon Canadian so they 
they have been engaged in the work of remedying those things and where uh, where a technical clause has been added to make sure that women are excluded many of our women have had to go back and undo that work so Mm -hmm. that women can be included in the generic legislation or the generic rulemaking that allows people to do anything that has any interest or potential of making money Now, recently, I've been searching my family history because we did an advert for Ancestry and they gave us a, a membership. And I'll be entirely honest, I've run out of things to say to my elderly relatives after we've all been in lockdown for a year, <laughs> including my mum. So it's good to say, hey, guess what I discovered? And everybody's really interested in it. Now, we talked about, you know, as part of the advert we did with them, you know, how difficult life has been made to try and trace your relatives But I think as well how little interest there is in what women's day-to-day life was like in the past. Um, For example, I've got a couple of people in my family, because my family's originally Irish, so uh, one of my uh, great-aunts had six children by six different men and never married um, in the 1920s. I'd love to ask her what life was like, how people responded to her. I also have a great, great, great grandmother who had three children born in 1841, 1842, 1843, which is the potato famine. That is right in the heart of the potato famine. And she is still knocking out a kid a year. And I have very little chance of ever discovering what her life was like. Occasionally, just occasionally, you get glimpses of the ordinary lives like that, which are otherwise unrecorded. And one of my favourite women in the book is Grazide Lisier, who was interrogated by the Inquisition in the south of France in 1321 on the 19th of August. We know the day when she testified. And she's an ordinary peasant woman from a village in the south of France. She is illiterate. She is entirely uneducated. And she is, according to the Inquisition, a heretic because the religion she happened to learn didn't fit into the the right framework for them. But as they ask her questions, she talks about her sex life uh, with, as it happens, the vicar. Um, (laughs) She talks about how her mates have been walking up the street and they stopped and had a chat. Yes, yes, we discussed this matter of religion because uh, Jeanette was walking up the street and then she came in and had a plate of beans with us. And so occasionally you do get a glimpse of someone's ordinary life. Marjorie Kemp is another one, the 14th century um, Christian pilgrim who she cried a lot. She ran through the streets crying, crying and crying and crying and and weeping in a in a sort of mystical way. I felt and that we, in the last year, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. <laughs> who hasn't done some mystical way. weeping? I mean Yeah, exactly. And and she writes again, she writes about her sex life actually. She writes about negotiating with her husband that she wants a celibate marriage. She talks about her life as a businesswoman and her failed business enterprises. So just occasionally we do get those but what we don't get, and it touches on what you're saying, Hannah, is that very often, of course, the most oppressed, the most working class, the enslaved are either not literate or they really don't have time to write up notes at the end of the day. And so their voices, of course, are the ones that we don't hear in history. And we, we have recover some of those but you know we're we're fighting against a tide there and I think we also have to expect to find them you know I think there's still a great general assumption that you know oh women didn't work Mm. you know just as a phrase women didn't work well what do you mean you know women have always worked you yeah. know, and and you know they'll have done you know childcare and cooking, but we have no idea you know who actually did the cooking you know in caves or whatever. There's there's this massive amount of assumption, and people who weren't wealthy they've always both worked whether it was in cottage industry mm. or in factories, and maybe the extended family has kind of looked after the kids, and you know people have made these arrangements. 
But there's always been work. We shouldn't assume that women in previous centuries were any happier with Mm. the status quo and being, you know, the default child carer, the default cleaner, any happier than we are. Why should they be? You know, I'm sure they were at least as feisty and, um, you know, I mean, they were certainly tough. I mean, your ancestors, like you say, popping out all these kids Mm. Well, I say popping out. Children don't generally pop out, yeah. do they? I mean, that's quite I think hard I use work. The horrible expression "banging out," in fact. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, there was a book, and I really can't remember the woman's name. Margaret somebody, and she became chairwoman of the Cooperative Women's Guild, and she produced a book in the thirties, forties called "Maternity," and it is the most horrific thing you've ever read. Just somebody asking ordinary women, "What is the?" physical what is the physical experience of your life you know oh yeah well my first child was really difficult and then after that I couldn't really stand up anymore or I had problems doing this or whatever the absolute relentless physical battery yeah that was the just the solid fact of most women's lives and really anything that the women in this book did I mean not all of them have kids of course but all of them would be the subject of prejudice of some or another (laughs) But the fact they did that most of them did anything at all is completely amazing. Yes, I remember being taught during my history degree by, of course, a male lecturer saying that, uh, and this is quite a commonly held belief, I think, that women in the past were less attached to their children. And we know that they must have been because they would have had 10 or 11 children. And so, you know, they died a lot. And it therefore follows that these women couldn't possibly have been as attached to their children because the unpalatable truth might be that actually they were utterly suffused with grief the whole time Mm. because they were losing their children and they were powerless to do anything about it and powerless to improve their circumstances in most cases. Now, of course, a lot of that is true for men too, but the lives of women are are written in that way. And when Elsa's talking also about Uh, women working outside the home it reminds me of Big Lil Biloka who was a fishwife in I think Hull and uh, I know her already (laughs) she was a monster there's a great picture of her storming down the wharf in Hull wrapped up with not quite a rolling pin in her hand, but you would not want to be on the receiving end of Big Lil Biloka's wrath and she was campaigning with some of her mates, there she is. You can you can see her in the conversation anyway. And she was campaigning with her mates for improved conditions on the trawlers where their husbands worked. Two hundred women marched down to the wharf, tipping the press off first to let them know that they were starting this protest. But that was written up as the housewife's protest. And Big Lil Balocca and all her mates were working a full day fish gutting. It's not glamorous work. It's hard, cold, physical work. And then they went home and were housewives. And yet they were written up and perceived as housewives. And we have to remember that when we are told that a woman is a housewife, it ain't necessarily so. She might be a brewer during the day and a housewife. She might be inventing photography in the basement and then be a housewife, and yeah. that the way in which the historian perceives her is not necessarily the way that her life existed. Tanya, there's quite a few women in this book who really uh, achieved the ultimate goal, power, if you're, going, if you're going to look at it that way. They became incredibly powerful. There's three in particular, Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher, Golda Meir, and they are women who have a very, uh, I can't say legacy because Hillary Clinton's still with us, but a sort of a contentious, and in some cases, for good reason, Margaret Thatcher. Um, But (laughs) do you think history does judge women way harder than it judges men? That question is for me, is it? Oh, good, good God. Um, Well, anyone can take it. I just thought I'd ask you because I hadn't asked you a question in a while. I might pass that one on to one of the other two. Cause Joe is the one who fought for us to include Margaret Thatcher, and I, I oh, know stop it about it. Go on, go on. There's, yeah, I can't let that pass. I can't go out on any sort of national broadcast talking about how I fought for Margaret Thatcher without <laughs> resisting that. 
It is true. We all had a line in the sand of, of people that we felt should be in the book. And mine, to no one's surprise more than my own, was Margaret Thatcher, because, you know, you can't leave her out. She certainly defined my experience of teenhood and certainly politicised me. I don't think that was what she intended, but it happened. But yes, yes and no. I think history judges powerful women differently. I suspect that once they get to a position of power, like Angela Merkel, they become sometimes a part of the furniture and they are simply treated like other mm. leaders. Thatcher was certainly able to to use the feminine mystique or the, the handbagging epithet <laughs> to her advantage, you know, and to play on that whenever she felt like it and to resist it when she didn't feel like it. But there have been women of great power like Catherine the Great who got there and simply refused to make any concessions to their own womanhood mm. whatsoever and were absorbed into the narrative as strong leaders. But for people like Golda Meir, I don't know about Golda Meir, but uh, Benazir Bhutto is also in the book, and some of those leaders have certainly had weaknesses described or found in them because they were women. Ailsa, you might want to say more about that, really. Well, I was perhaps gonna, not. I was going to jump in there as well, um, that one thing that we found doing the Twitter account and the book that we have to scrutinise, you know, we, Wikipedia is very often our first port, port of call, but then obviously we double check, we triple check, we use it as a jumping off point. But yeah, the way these women leaders are described, what, what we found, and I, I can't remember, I think there was a Brazilian politician that we featured on Twitter, and her indictment for fraud and corruption is was very strongly highlighted. But then if you take that in the view of history as a whole, how many politicians emerge unscathed from their political term without any accusations of corruption? Golda Meir, yes, she faced exactly the same, you know, the same accusations, but but she's part of the bigger picture. This happens across the board. And it's, uh, it's part of our mission to show in this book that women are often just as flawed, just as corrupt, Mm. sometimes just as evil as men. And so we have to be careful as well. We'll get people reacting on the Twitter account as if she was the worst woman in the world and did this thing that no one else had ever done. But if you, you know, if you take politicians as a whole, as I've just said, it's it's not that uncommon that these accusations in particular are levelled at pretty much everybody. Yeah. Although some of our women are the worst women in the world and Tanya really (laughs) likes those ones. Yeah. (laughs) I've become the go-to woman when we do these interviews for scientists and murderers. Oh, go on then, let's hear about one of those. <laughs> and I really, I really wanted to get this in. Um, as, <laughs> um, it, it's not that I, I just wanted to say, firstly, when we have, whenever we feature a less than wholesome and inspiring woman on the Twitter account, we invariably get one or two people going, well, I'm not going to celebrate her. And we have to say once again that we are not celebrating her and our our mission is to put her back in history and we're not saying please emulate her and go out and you know do uh, these foul deeds but she's not to interrupt but mari stopes every time we mention her we get that every single time we mention mari stopes we get kicked back about well she was a eugenicist yeah she did something wrong yeah (laughs) as if if that is if that deletes her entirely from history and we just keep her out well so I'm going to mention that. So at the beginning of every month, because as we were putting the book together, we thought it was just going to be one woman per day for 366 days. And then these themes started to emerge, some of which we've been talking about here for the last 45 minutes. And so we decided that at the beginning of every month, we'd have this sort of little mini intro on a different theme. And and it, and it would tie into one of the women that would be coming up in that month. So on the 3rd of March, we have Dagmar Overby. And on that day, on the 3rd of March in 1921, Danish serial killer Dagmar Overby was sentenced to death for killing nine children, including her own daughter, in one of Denmark's most notorious trials. And so we put her in here. And it turns out that there was a a sort of a positive outcome from this absolutely horrific trial because she was... Um, she was offering to find um, homes for the children of women who were unmarried and they didn't know what to do with their babies. And the women would give their babies to Dagmar Overby and she would say that she'd find families for them, but in fact that she didn't find families for them. She she killed the children and it's absolutely horrific. But one thing that came out of the trial in that a law was passed in Denmark establishing public homes for illegitimate children. 
So there was a massive societal change mm. that followed from this trial. But that is not why we have put her in the book. We haven't said, oh, look, she did this terrible thing, but this great thing came out of it because we have quite a few other women that just were uh, quite appalling or flawed. <laughs> and the, and the, um, the chapter that comes at the beginning of March, the little mini intro is called Women Are People Too. And the end of that, we're saying women are not here to inspire you. Women are not your muses. They are real flesh and blood, often flawed humans. And we think that it just to highlight only inspiring awesome women does no one any favours, men or women. Mm. It's not just men throughout history who've behaved badly. And until we bring these women out of the shadows, history will be incomplete. Agreed. I mean, to briefly revisit Margaret Thatcher, we made like a two hour documentary about Margaret Thatcher on the 40th anniversary of her becoming the first female prime minister because she was the first female prime minister and although and we spoke to a huge amount of people and although everybody hated her no actually Edwina Curry loved her (laughs) everybody else seemed to hate her but everybody found something to respect in her achievements if not in her so it is so difficult because yeah, I would like not to give her the oxygen of publicity, but nonetheless, she did what she did, and to and, and she her was. I mean, I, a disservice. Yeah. I wrote that entry, and Tanya and Elsa know how hard I had to work to make that sound hopefully impartial. Um, <laughs> and, and I think Everybody's what I said was something. In the face. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly said something along the lines of she polarised society, which is fair, uh, amongst those who felt that she was, you know, doing a useful thing and, and uh, encouraging independence and uh, private business, and those who felt that she was cutting back the welfare state. Uh, and so I, I have tried, as historians have to, to not be too partisan, which might sound ridiculous with this particular book, because of course there is an agenda underlying the whole thing Mm. but that in writing the individual women we tried as far as possible to step back and say what is their significance and Thatcher is a case in point because at the time you will remember lots of people saying well she's not a woman she's not a woman well she is actually you don't get to choose which women stand for you in history, the first woman prime minister in mm. the United Kingdom was Margaret Thatcher. And the, the significance of that and the relatively early date at which it happened, in some ways ridiculously late, but in some ways surprisingly early, was a landmark mm. for, for this country and for many others. And as an example, showing that it can be done She's very important. We have also in the book Vigdis Finbogadottir from Iceland. Oh, great who... pronunciation. Icelandic is well difficult to pronounce. We, we've all, we had to practice a lot of these. Ask me about Biawiachishisht. <laughs> Go on. Um, Vigdis Finbogadottir in Iceland spoke about how she had been prime minister and that at the end of a, a performance that she'd given some speech at a conference or something, a little boy turned to his mum and said, Hang on, I've just seen President Reagan on the television. Can can men be presidents? Can men be presidents as well? Oh, that's terrific. Yeah, yeah. and he hadn't realised that men could be presidents because he'd only ever seen a woman doing it. So we're not fighting for equal rights to oppress the other half of the population. We're just saying that each of these women has been a powerful exemplar of what any of us can do and the power of seeing them and representing is is enormous and also of course in terms of the many many women of color or women from different backgrounds that we've got that making them visible is such an important part as we all know of allowing ourselves to imagine ourselves inhabiting that space if if i can jump in yes certainly This was a complete revelation to me when we were just preparing to do our very first book event about six or eight weeks ago, because I have an undergraduate degree in maths and physics. And I'd spent 30 years laughing about how I was so bad at it that I couldn't possibly have become a physicist, let alone a mathematician. And as I was thinking about who I wanted to talk about for this event we did for the British Library, it suddenly hit me. There's an idea, um, a concept in psychology called priming, where 
for example, if you have a group of girls who are about to sit a maths exam and you say to the girls, girls are really good at maths, that group of girls will do better on the maths exam than they would have. Or if you say to the group of girls beforehand, girls aren't very good at maths, they will do worse. And it made me think, what, in what way was I primed when I was doing my undergrad degree? No women were mentioned. There were no female lecturers. We were a tiny percentage of female students. If I'd seen other women doing it, if I'd had an idea in my mind that I could have imagined myself becoming mm. a physicist, maybe I would have done better. You can't be it if you can't see it. That's one of the mm. things that we're hopefully trying to change with our book and our Twitter account. Is that and my cat roaring in the background? No, it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. Should I throw it out? Is no, it's it fine. It's, no, it's fine. I, I actually have my cat shut out because they spend their whole time just right up against the screen, like showing people their bums. <laughs> so uh, I've actually shut them out. And I thought, is that her making that wailing noise? No, but I no. thought that I thought that one was going to stay asleep, but he's decided <laughs> to get up. I think he's joining in the general outrage, frankly. <laughs> they, they are. They are feminist cats. Well, I, the other thing that I wanted to say about, about, you know, Thatcher, for example, is that one of the things that I hope that we, that the book accumulatively, that the cumulative effect mm. of the book is that history is complicated. You know, people are complicated and people are complex and weird, you know, and do amazing things, make really bad decisions, are really selfish, mm. are incredibly altruistic, you know, all of this stuff. And none of these women could be given a single adjective. You know, they're not all badass women or awesome women. or Kind. Kind, <laughs> kind. for God's sake. You know, I mean, one of the things, you know, um, we also have Dorothy Hodgkin in the book who won the Nobel Prize. Um, it was reported in the Daily Mail as Oxford housewife wins Nobel. Jesus and um, yeah. she was Margaret Thatcher's chemistry teacher. Yes. And she was incredibly left wing. She worked for humanitarian causes. She was a pacifist. She was anti-nuclear. And through her time in office, Margaret Thatcher would ask Dorothy Hodgkin for advice about international affairs because, I mean, politically they were however far apart. But she obviously respected her opinion they had a personal relationship through the teaching. You know, that's complicated. And, you know, even Margaret Thatcher is a human being. Mm. We have another case in the book. So I was I was on Twitter a little while ago and there was a bookshop posted saying, um, oh, somebody just came in and said, why are you stocking Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind is racist. And they said, is, should we not be stocking Gone with the Wind? And it reminded me of a story that we have in the book about Hattie McDaniel who yes. was the first African-American to win an Oscar for her role yeah. in Gone yeah. with the Wind. She was then treated absolutely abysmally at the ceremony. And that's obviously something that we have to know about and that has to be recognised. That's part of the terrible racist history of the mm. Oscars. But that's also part of the history of Gone with the Wind. You know, it's complicated. Mm. You can't mm. just say, well, we don't talk about Gone with the Wind now. Yeah. And there's a further complication there as well, which was that Hattie McDaniel was also mistreated by the black press in America because they criticised her, having having seen her as this powerful example of a black woman in movies, which was very prolific and, and did many, many movies. But owing to the constraints and the perceptions of the time, she was nine times out of ten playing a maid. She was playing a maid yeah. or the nanny or, as in Gone with the Wind, Mammy. And naturally many of the the black journalists wanted better examples wanted to say you know can't mm. you be playing something more aspirational well no she had to she had to do the roles that were available to her so she also got mis miscalled by her own press the people who should have been rooting for her most of all and so to bolster the point that Elsa's making about yeah. complicated histories that it's not as if you can simply hold up someone and say, well, marvellous role model, marvellous role model, everything was hunky-dory and now history has improved. We know from Black Lives Matter and so on that history improves. Sometimes it goes forward a step and back two steps. Sometimes it seems to have gone forward many, many steps, but actually it's made no progress at all. It's just got better um, spin doctors. Mm. And that sometimes both the support... And the criticism comes from a quarter you wouldn't expect it to be from. And that applies certainly to, to many of the women in this book. 
yeah, I think a lot of that ties in with the with the idea that for for, for so long and for if so long in your life, but also for so long in history, you know, little girls are raised not to see other little girls as potential allies, but as potential threats, and therefore bringing down somebody else becomes power in itself, doesn't it? And I think we still see that now. Um, to the Twitter's full of that bullshit. So much of the book is about the incremental advances for women and how they help each other. But underlying it is this question of how history is presented. And one of the ways that people experience women in history nowadays is through Wikipedia. It's the first port of call for almost anything you can look up and everyone listening to this has the power to edit it. So one simple thing that we want to see, we want to see more women in history. We want people to be constantly telling us on Twitter who we've missed out. We want to be hearing about women that we've never heard of before who we ought to have written in history. And we want to see other people doing this work as well. And we love it, especially to see blokes doing that work and supporting us as well, because we know that this this whole narrative speaks predominantly to women of course it does but it's not if if it's only speaking to women then really what's the point because you know we we need to take the whole population along with us yeah absolutely i did an assembly at a girls school just recently of course it was all you know virtual and whatever but yeah 800 girls and i mean i didn't go to an all girls school so it was kind of it was kind of weird for me we had a discussion as well and they were so gorgeous and one of them said to me one of their questions was do you think men and women will ever be equal? And it it really, I don't know, she was maybe 14 and I really didn't know what to say. And I said, I really want to say to you, yes, of course. You know, I said, but I have to be honest and say that my experience just in my life and my experience of reading history is that there is a massive pushback And so all I can encourage you to do is to act as though the equality is already there. Because, Mm. of course, you are equal. Of course you are. The equality is there. It just might not be recognised. You know, they talked about they're just starting to share their their site or they've moved on to the boys' site. They're sharing the site now with the boys' school and all the interesting... uh, challenges let's say that that is beginning to bring up it just really struck me you know that what what are we saying to girls I mean this is all kicking off now of course with the with the the these stories about these horrific sexual assaults in schools but you know what what have we been saying to girls all these years and what are we continuing to say to girls about their worth and the roles that they're meant to play um yeah and I, yeah and and one thing as as we've said through the book if maybe what we've never really said is what we would hope people take away from the book and certainly girls in school i would hope that what they take away is it's complicated but it's possible mm. you know there there are so many ways to make an impact some of them recognized some of them not in, recognized some of them very much in the private sphere and others super public it won't be easy but it's possible it's always been possible and yeah. it might be more and more possible going forward yeah and, and just, just to add to that finally one thing that we want to show is that women have done everything and anything and can do anything and everything and if you want to find a role model for a woman who was um, a firefighter or a woman who was a strong woman in a circus or a woman who was an inventor and the list can go on and on if you want to find a role model you will find one because women have done everything that's a great place to end it on this day she is available to buy now have you got something else on the horizon you can talk about we haven't as on this day she i think we've all got things separately but uh there's there's no 
particular plan. We are longing to do a live event, which is going to be a dinner party with some of our women. And we're particularly excited because we want to wear hats. We want a different hat. (laughs) Elizabeth I will have a big ruff and Gertrude Bell will have a a velvet bodice on and and and, and at least three of them will have trousers on. We'll have suffragette suffragette sashes. That is a fantastic idea. On this day, she is still going on Twitter, obviously, so people can follow you there. If people want to get in touch with you, I suppose the best way to do would be to follow you on Twitter. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. We're on Instagram as well. And we have a, a website on thisdayshe.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This has been super interesting. Thanks for having thank us. You. Oh, thank you. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.